Austin. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Uh, we're talking about refi today. We're talking about refi. And I think something I am excited about for this episode is we're not just talking about refi, but people who have actually put capital and an investment thesis behind refi. Me too. I think so much of the conversation in the space, appropriately so, has to do with the potential of the movement for the planet. But what's exciting to me about the folks that we're talking to today are that they are investors who have commitments to LPs and they're not climate-specific investors. They are generalist seed stage investors who, from sort of a top-level thesis, found themselves in the refi space. That's the piece that like, I think is the most interesting. Like, There's about there's an, there's an unlimited number of good public goods that if someone put a bank account up to, you could say we should build, right? From high-speed rail to direct air carbon capture to all of these like amazing list of like things that would make the world a better place. Um, but the overlap of that in venture capital is often pretty small or at least pretty indirect. So th- that's part of what I'm excited about for today. Yeah, or it's kind of contrived, right? It's people who decide they really want to work in a specific space and then work backwards to try to fit like a square peg into like a roundish hole to make it worthwhile. And these folks, they really went the opposite direction. So so I'll tell you the story. So sometime last summer, I heard this term refi, which is short for regenerative finance. So we have DeFi and now we have refi. And refi describes a movement of people and companies who are applying principles of Web3 to the challenge of climate change. And I was pretty skeptical at first, and I think you might have been too, I'm not sure. But yeah, but after I started digging in and talking to more and more people in the space, I found myself gaining increasing conviction that this wasn't just a good for the planet movement. It was a real good for business movement. And two of the people who I talked to who are most instructive in this space were the folks that we're going to talk to today. So that's Ethan Daly and Emma Sokoloff of Shine Capital. Ethan and Emma, they're generalist seed stage investors, as we said. So I found myself getting a ton of conviction in the space through my conversation with them and through going through their big old market map, working backwards from just the size of the opportunity and how just perfectly built blockchain is to tackle some of these big problems in climate change. And, you know, Amira, as you mentioned, this is the final episode as part of this special series on climate, at at least for now. We'll see where it goes. Uh, if you liked what you heard and you want to hear more about climate and blockchain or other series in deep dives like this, let us know. We're always open to suggestions and feedback, especially on how you find our episodes. Cool. Should we get started? Let's get started. Emma and Ethan, thank you so much for joining us. So I thought we'll spend most of today talking about refi, but want to give you all the opportunity to give us a quick sort of two minutes on Shine and, and what you all do and what you invest in. So first, we'll introduce ourselves. I'm Emma. At Shine, I lead our frontier investing, which is primarily focused on climate and biotech. And I'm Ethan. I lead most of our crypto investing. And then Emma and I have been digging into the intersection of climate and crypto since last summer, honestly. And it naturally led us down the rabbit hole of refi. But as mentioned, yeah, let's let's do a quick overview on Shine and then and then get into it. Shine's a pure play early stage venture capital firm, proudly based in New York City, but we invest globally. We're boutique, team-based, and collaborative. And we like to say we're stage-specific and sector opportunistic, but above all else, we're an entrepreneur-focused firm. And so our investments can largely be categorized across consumer, software, fintech, frontier, and crypto businesses. And we tend to be quite thesis-driven within those areas. 
Today, we're excited to share more about our perspective on the intersection of crypto and carbon. Before we jump in, just some specifics on the firm. We typically lead or co-lead seed or Series A financings. We're currently investing out of our second fund, which is a $200 million early stage vehicle, as well as our first opportunity fund, which is $100 million, both of which we raised this year. And Shine was founded by our partner, Mo Koifman, who has been a venture investor since 2008. And he's worked with startups, public companies, and, and everything in between. Some of the relevant companies we have collectively worked with include Toucan, Molecule, HiveMapper, Plaid, Notion, Kingdom Supercultures, and many others. So that's a pretty broad spectrum of companies for what initially sounds like a pretty focused thesis or mission. We can obviously talk much about refi as we get into this, but like refi is not like a mainstream buzzword at this point. What was that process like of determining that something that's still fairly niche and is kind of near your expertise, but kind of a little bit far from it as well, fits into the capital profile you're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think... As Ethan mentioned, we're, we're sector opportunistic, but we do sort of narrow the aperture and start to pull on specific threads and focus on more targeted thematic areas. So I think actually climate is a great example of that because climate tech is a catch-all, right? It includes industries ranging from energy to transportation. It affects the food we eat, the buildings we live in. And climate tech is is just kind of this sort of larger category. So we sort of pick our lanes within climate tech and ended up focusing on a couple of areas ranging from the future of food to carbon markets. So I think in terms of, you know, why we we got excited about carbon credits and then, you know, we can explain how that led to refi and and why we felt like crypto was the best way to to solve them is that, you know, higher level, we believe that capital markets, such as carbon markets, when they're operating efficiently with proper liquidity between supply and demand are a very powerful force. And as we think about mitigating climate change, which is arguably one of the larger secular trends of our time, we feel like, again, if you put capital markets to work, they can really be utilized to mitigate climate change. I thought when we first talked, that was actually one of the most interesting things that that sort of drew me to want to chat with you more is that a lot of people come at this from the angle of, I want to do something about climate and blockchain is interesting to me. You all really started top down from a thesis of climate tech is going to be really huge. We have a couple of focus areas that we want to dig into here. And when it comes to carbon markets, we actually think crypto is a really interesting opportunity to unlock. And I'm curious, so it'd be great to touch on a little bit more why carbon markets? Why did you decide that that's a place where you think there's a big opportunity? And and then we could dig into what, what you think crypto unlocks about carbon markets to help them operate more efficiently. So to give our quick overview of carbon markets, how they work today versus how we think they could work, we look at them like any marketplace. So there's demand on one side and supply on the other. Um, So demand for carbon credits largely comes from corporates. Um, So these are public companies who have set ESG goals and they need to offset their emissions in order to achieve whatever target they've promised to their board or to their shareholders. So, you know, this could be Amazon, this could be Apple, this could be Delta. These are companies that we as consumers know and recognize. And we've seen the headlines of how many of these companies have pledged to become net zero by 2030, 2050, et cetera. 
On the other hand, supply of carbon credits comes from projects that are removing or sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, and this is carbon that would otherwise be released. This could be a logger who does not cut down a forest to make paper, or a farmer who stops tilling their land and instead implements regenerative agricultural practices. So those are the two sides of of the market. And you have, you know, Amazon who can only reduce their emissions so much and needs to offset the rest. And then you have the logger, on the other hand, who needs to be incentivized to not cut down the forest that would otherwise be their livelihood. So that's how we think about the market high level. And, and today, you know, these are these are heavily intermediated and opaque. So if Amazon wants to buy a carbon offset from said logger, you know, they need to go through a broker. There's no visibility onto the quality of that credit, how it's priced, why it's priced that way. And what this has ultimately led to is carbon credits being grossly underpriced, actually. So this means that on the demand side, Amazon can buy a carbon credit really cheaply. So they're not actually properly incentivized to reduce their emissions on the other hand, because it's really inexpensive to offset all the emissions they do have. Um, It's super cheap. And then on the supply side for the logger, it doesn't incentivize him to not cut down his forest because the carbon credits that he would be able to monetize are not lucrative enough. He would make more money from cutting down the trees than he would from not. So he's not motivated. Can I poke into that a little bit? Normally, we think of heavily opaque markets where there's a broker involved, leading to a lot of inefficiency and actually higher prices. Why is these credits being underpriced right now in the market as is? Especially if we're talking about you know large-scale players like Amazon, who probably have a lot of bargaining power or are looking to show off how much they're spending on credits. Like, What is, what is the dynamic there that causes credit prices to be suppressed? Carbon credits are right now being used for marketing more than anything else. So I don't actually think there's any incentive to pay a real amount. Like when you go on a website, when you go on Delta's website and they say that they offset their emissions, they they don't advertise how much they pay to do that. And then on the flip side, they have real margins that they need to account for and, and they can't afford to pay a lot of money on, on carbon offsets. Basically, the the incentive on the demand side is to buy as cheaply as possible. So they're going to kind of seek out what ends up being lower quality credits. They don't even know where they're coming from. And, and what corporates will do a lot of the time is they'll have one set of credits that they buy, again, for a marketing story that it's really high quality and premium. But then the bulk of what they're actually buying to offset is low quality and they might not even know where it's coming from. Totally. There may be like an ESG quota. And I definitely agree. Amazon has some weight to push around. But at the end of the day, these enterprises are trying to get the biggest bang for their buck. It goes into margins. It, it returns to P&L. So there's still a pressure to get cheap credits. And as Emma highlighted, and I think this is actually, it plays really nicely with some of the benefits of the transparency in refi. We're getting to better systems where you can more accurately price credits and potentially incentivize enterprises to pay a more of a premium price for higher quality credits. What I'll also point out is that the the scale is tipping real time right now, where right now anyone who's buying a carbon credit, when we're talking about U.S. corporates, it's all voluntary. There's no tax in place. There's no regulation that's forcing them to do so. So historically, demand has actually been kind of soft. We are just like right now on the precipice of demand 
skyrocketing. And again, if you think about how many companies have set that net zero goal for 2030, 2050, they need to offset, they need to buy credit. So we're on the brink of demand outstripping supply, and that's what's really going to cause prices to go up. But historically, if you think about the last decade, 10, 20 years, it's, it's been softer. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to dig into that a bit because maybe implicit to your investment thesis here is that there's going to be a government mandate at some point. Is, is that fair? Let's just say that like the political winds in the United States swing in a different direction and a bunch of the infrastructure bill and a bunch of the inflation act reduction work is, is undone in the next administration, that the investment thesis here still holds? Or is this really a, uh, in some ways a bet that the U.S. government or, and governments internationally are going to do things like mandate floor prices for carbon that continue to increase to meet more of that level that a lot of these projects are hoping to end up at? We're long-term investors, so it's a five to seven-year horizon. And being honest on this topic, we'd expect some level of change or hope for that going forward. We still see this as, as mostly the groundwork, and we'll get into Toucan and kind of the thesis behind where we placed our initial bet in the space. Um, but laying those kind of foundations, especially around a, a crypto-centric approach here, we think transcends the timing of whether this is a two-year change in policy, a five-year change in policy, or a 10-plus-year change in policy. I think the assumption baked into our thesis is exploding demand for carbon credits. So that could come from regulatory change. That could come from the secular trend that is climate change and, and the momentum that we have already seen. And then I think what got us most excited about crypto, and, and we'll speak to this, is that we actually think that crypto is, is what can unlock the, the most new demand for carbon credits. Exploding demand usually does not dovetail with the increasing cost, right? Like in most systems that we see increasing demand for, there's a period where the price increases as supply catches up and then more suppliers come online and the price drops, right? You see this from everything in like high-tech manufacturing to like, you know, pieces of clothing that end up starting to get trendy, you know, wh whatever it is, right? Everything about except housing stock really seems to work on on that cycle. So if we see exploding demand, like what makes you think that the cost of a carbon credit is going to go up in accordance with that as opposed to just people finding ways to actually make them cheaper and cheaper? Yeah, I mean, I, I think implicit in, in the examples you gave is just access to means of production, across the board. And so there's a couple areas we can dig into. But project development, and we'd even say some of the systems of of measuring and recording the impact of carbon sequestration are still nascent and, and not standardized across the board. And so in terms of, of this surge in demand, which we're expecting just from from greater engagement around climate action initiatives from the corporate side, it'll be difficult for supply to scale in the same way of, of matching that price impact. I guess the piece that I've always struggled with on the voluntary side in the absence of social cost of carbon being legislated or in some ways, you know, codified as a, as, through a pricing group system is that, uh, you know, if you look at like what, like to start with Delta for your example, they're probably paying around $4 or less per ton today, right? And so we've seen that then Microsoft is not paying much more than that when they're doing these massive offsets. So I think what we've seen today is there actually is a lot of, of usable supply in the market that is not 
under a cost squeeze right now, right? There's not so many people trying to buy carbon credits that it's driving the price up. And my understanding too is there's there's a huge number of projects that haven't even been started, either because they're economically viable or because the demand for for credits isn't there. So that's the piece that I'm just really curious about. As folks who operate on the capital side, you know, there's a moral component of this for you guys, I'm sure. But like at the end of the day, you have a duty to have LP returns, and that's the piece that I'm interested in. Where it's like, where, where is your sort of confidence that the market is going to evolve in ways that these things are are not only good things to do, but that they're good investments to make, especially when we're talking about tokenized carbon systems. Our sort of thesis and and why we're excited about carbon credits is, is we believe they can and should be a critical instrument in achieving net zero emissions. They are not today. But if and when they are to be priced efficiently, offsets have the capacity to both finance projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere, as well as incentivize corporates to reduce their emissions. So it's that kind of harmony. If we create the right liquidity between supply and demand, that's what carbon credits should do. So we believe that there there is an existing market for these carbon credits. Today, it's super clunky. It operates offline. But we believe that were it to operate properly with sufficient liquidity and and transparency, again, between supply and demand, it could be a real tool. So that's sort of why we're excited. I mean, to your point, you know, obviously we care about the planet and society, but we're fiduciaries. And climate change is, is... is arguably the largest secular trend of our time. And it would be irresponsible to not do our part to invest in the mitigation of climate change and and adaptation where it gets really exciting is, is kind of some of what Ethan was teasing as we think about more specifically what it means for crypto to be a net new source of demand for these carbon credits. Got it. So I'm hearing a couple a couple of things that sort of give you conviction in the this thesis in particular. One is climate, generally speaking, is a huge trend, and you've already identified carbon markets to be a big piece of sort of where we expect to see growth. Two is crypto enables more liquidity for carbon assets or just nature-based assets in general. And I think implicit in that assumption there is any place we've seen crypto get involved in sort of the creation of more liquidity in a market, you see overall market growth in that market. And then three, the growth of crypto as an industry itself means that there's going to be more demand for these on-chain assets because you have this whole new industry emerging that is also going to care about um, carbon credits and they're going to want to buy on-chain native credits to line their Dow treasuries or use for whatever offsets that they, they're going to use for their sort of own climate goals. Is that a good distillation of sort of where you think there's going to be growth? To distill this in its simplest form, we definitely believe in and we're deeply underwriting the growth of the market cap of carbon markets as that unit. Whether it's direct price appreciation or increase in supply or backing systems that will enable more companies to purchase these credits and with the ultimate goal of pushing more funding back to regenerative projects. Do you have a sense of sort of the the addressable market and and how you think about that growth, like where it is today and and where you think sort of the overall growth of carbon markets is going and and how you get there? Today, voluntary carbon markets in the U.S. are nascent. They're small. It's basically sub a billion dollar market. So I think, you know, this is 
this is one of those investments where if you did the math, it probably wouldn't make sense. It's it's more about kind of squinting and believing. So again, you know, we're investing under the premise of that exploding demand. I don't think, by the way, that increasing demand is a very unique or controversial perspective. I think it's it's pretty obvious and, and widely agreed upon, but I think it's, you know, to what degree will the demand grow and whether it's through regulation or, or just increasing pressures. Ethan mentioned DAOs, foundations. These are crypto entities that have accumulated real wealth. You know, they, they've amassed really large treasuries, obviously, you know, maybe smaller today than they were six months ago, but nonetheless, they're looking for non-correlated assets to kind of diversify those treasuries, the, those on-chain balance sheets. And when you think about that, combined with the fact that they have a higher risk appetite, they're used to the volatility of the crypto markets, they've undergone winters. So that sort of source of demand got us really excited because we think that they are going to be willing to pay forward for credits. So we talked about Delta and Amazon and, and their incentives. And obviously, they're going to try and get credits as cheaply as possible. They're going to put out a, a press release and they'll do some marketing around it. But I think on-chain, you'll you'll have almost what we see as this this novel form of equity financing for projects. So this is capital that moves faster, it waits longer, it can tolerate a lot more volatility versus like traditional project finance loans that you would have to get if you wanted to start a new project. When we think about mitigating climate change, you know, we look for technology that can accelerate velocity because a lot of questions around climate change is just time. We, we don't have time to wait for the traditional mechanisms of marketplace bootstrapping or technology development. Like we need to go way faster. And I think what gets us excited about this on-chain demand from crypto entities is that they, again, they're, they're willing to move faster. They're willing to give equity finance, not just debt. They can wait longer. And we think that is what really can actually pull forward supply. Because if you're the logger and you're getting those $4 credits from Delta, you're not going to be very motivated. But if there's a, a DAO or a foundation that has this large volatile treasury and they, they need a non-correlated asset and they go to that logger, they go to a direct air capture developer and they offer this sort of form of equity financing, we feel like that is what will motivate the supply of carbon credits. That's what will pull it forward. And that's what can become this sort of like building block, DeFi building block for the, the green asset class that you mentioned, Amira. When we first met, Ethan, you showed me this, I think, like pretty impressive, I think it was like a Figma document where you'd mapped out everything going on at the intersection of blockchain and climate. And so what does that market map look like? What are the sort of different pieces? And, and dig in a little more to definitions. There's a lot of pride with that random market map we produced in the winter. It's helped guide us in understanding the system and what sits on-chain and off-chain. It was part of our process of winning the deal with Toucan, which was wonderful. And we've constantly been updating it. But to give quick definitions to a few of those areas, just so it's not buzzwords for everybody, project development is truly starting with the generation of carbon credits. It's engaging farms or, or other practices that have the potential for carbon sequestration and typically pairing some expertise with how you would develop that carbon credit as well as the capital funds required for that project development. That naturally are those requirements are set by usually verification standards. So that would be your VERAs, your gold standards, your American carbon registries. Um, 
And from those bodies, there's then these criteria that must be adhered to to receive carbon credit approval. And what kind of goes into that criteria is, is what I was saying very casually as MRV, that's measurement, reporting, and verification. Now, this process is broader and, and ever-changing in that there's different practices for recording this information. More specifically, you can now have drone footage to on-foot individuals walking through a forest and, and making recordings and, and measurements there. But the space... <laughs> The space is now defined by multiple multiple players feeding into these kind of unique data streams that define what a carbon credit is, which you could kind of see the life cycle of, of project development. The confusing component here, or, or I'd say where some of the inefficiency lies, is having multiple standard bodies, as well as the bottleneck of going through a single entity, is somewhat inefficient, opaque, and, and painstaking. And these standards bodies are like the Veras, the gold standards of the world. These are nonprofits that set the standards. They're not incentivized to be on the cutting edge of technology innovation. They're they're nonprofits. Got it. So like I'm a let's say I'm a kelp farmer or a farmer in Ecuador. I've I've heard about what's going on with the opportunity to put carbon credits online. I have a, the opportunity to be able to put these things on chain. Today, I might go work with like a Vera, have some sort of digital monitoring, recording verification system to figure out what methodology I need to adhere to in order to actually be able to sell these credits. And that's the world today. Yes. And even hearing you explain it, like it's a lot of work to expect from a kelp farmer in addition to running their operation. And, and ultimately what they're going to learn is it's really expensive to do that and they're not going to make enough money from the carbon credits to make it worth their time or effort. And that's where I think people start talking about MRV and digital MRV as a place that can innovate against these goals, right? Which is yeah. they can they can monitor what they're doing and the credits they're offering so much more efficiently than maybe having someone dispatch to a forest. I do relate these things to data because I think it is a close tie to crypto as well. But if we consider MRV or digital MRV as like the collecting, storing, and, and sharing of sequestration data, the blockchain is then that that ideally immutable ledger. And, and the transparency provided by these ideally in some way automated systems or simpler systems that make it easier for your, your average kelp farmer to, hey, let's record this impact that I'm, I'm holding, ideally then can be uploaded or incorporated into a system that's accessible to everybody and, and easily understood. And so that's, that's our high-level breakdown of, of where ReFi sits today with those constituent components. Admittedly, there's a variety of endeavors. And it feels like every single time I go to a conference, there's this new up-and-coming refi trend or, or approach to this space. But we've spent most of our time, I'd say, around, especially the registry systems, um, and increasingly around MRV. And then, as you mentioned, there's also the buy side where not only can corporates start to buy these credits on-chain, but you'll start to see more and more crypto projects buy credits that are on-chain for their sort of DAO endowment or just companies that want to be crypto-native buying them as their sort of offset option. Absolutely. I mean, we even saw in some of the yield games, which were interesting and, and fun early days when we could all entertain the idea that 20% yield was sustainable for at least like five to seven years. And that obviously was not the case. But um, there's different ways of plugging in a, a non-volatile asset. And I even think just the premise of having something that has the potential for high price appreciation, has some some alternative demand sources outside of the crypto ecosystem, makes it enticing for someone in, in the DeFi landscape to to play around and, and build a unique tool based on this. Whether it's being able to take collateral in the form of carbon credits or just have some sophisticated wealth management practice or like DAO healthiness in terms of treasuries for saying like, why don't you push 
into carbon credits that's that's not really directly tied to direct market outputs. Um, but I have to admit as well in, in this component, it's early days. We saw a lot more attention around this in, in the bull market. And I think making sure we have a formal system that works for both Web 2 and Web 3 is the ultimate goal because interest will wax and wane depending on wealth and, and the healthiness of a lot of these treasuries. If I'm an entrepreneur today and I'm saying, hey, this space is really cool, I'm interested in digging into it. You've said the names of a lot of companies that are already in the space. Where, where do you think the opportunities are? Where would you direct people to, to focus in terms of these gaps in the market today? We do think measurement MRV or decentralized MRV is a massive need in the market. You know, going back to what Ethan was saying today, if you're a farmer, you want to measure the amount of carbon that you're sequestering, someone needs to come and physically sample your soil. And that is very hard to scale. So in decentralized MRV, you know, we mentioned Regen, which is taking a, a pretty full stack approach. There's Open Forest Protocol um, on NIR that's doing this. Collectivo is working on this. So there are teams that are, are really focused on on, you know, how do we how do we really decentralize this? How do we take advantage of people on the ground? How do we take advantage of novel satellite technologies to better be able to measure this? So I think that's definitely an area where we're seeing a lot of attention right now and and yet to be solved. And then what I would say, you know, more broadly in, in refi and, and kind of as we describe the carbon markets is we see crypto as as a, a source of financing oftentimes, um, you know, that that's kind of at its core what it's doing. And beyond the carbon markets, there are other kind of deep tech research areas where we think crypto can be used as this kind of novel form of equity financing, whether it's around, you know, nuclear fusion, phyto mining, these are other kind of far out climate tech trends that that need capital. You know, again, going back to my velocity point, like we we need to figure this out sooner rather than later. And we think crypto can help us accelerate there. And then the last area we've been thinking about, and, and this kind of goes back to MRV, is using crypto to incentivize behavior change and, and kind of the power of, of tokens to do that. So we focus mostly on enterprise uh, demand and use cases, but in terms of a consumer application, you know, if you can use a, a token to incentivize someone to change their food consumption or their energy consumption, we feel like there there's an interesting kind of consumer opportunity there. That's interesting. So it's there's MRV, there's almost the idea of like a, a nuclear power DAO, like something where you're just like offering financing for these really out there frontier technologies, which feels a little bit along the lines of maybe what Stripe Frontier Fund is doing, except, you know, on, on crypto. And more democratized because, you know, it can attract real experts, academics, people from the industry that really know this space well and, and otherwise kind of government funding or, or increasingly so venture capital is a way to finance these projects. But we think that kind of decentralizing and bringing together collectives of, of people through, to your point, like financing DAOs. Yeah, because the the life cycle is longer, just different. The number of people involved is broader, perhaps. And then the final example you said is sort of interesting consumer use cases, like ways that we can incentivize different consumer behavior using tokenization and, and like interesting forms of tokenomics. Is there something, you know, as, as we close out the episode, what are you seeing in the ecosystem right now? It could be a team, maybe a technology, uh, maybe an energy that excites you the most about the space. 
What do you want people to know that say when they're wondering, like, is there something here? I think for me, it's just all about the people that we've met along the way. And again, just the caliber and diversity of people that the ecosystem is attracting, the the rigor and intensity that people are bringing to this ecosystem. You know, the Toucan team, they're you know, these were technical climate activists who genuinely wanted to mitigate climate change. And and they very authentically, similar to us, came to the conclusion that crypto is an underutilized tool. Um, So it's, it's really the people, you know, John Allison, who has basically created an entire community content repository and and ecosystem around refi. These are real people around the world who are, you know, at the intersection uh, of climate tech and, and crypto, and they genuinely care. They're really smart. They're very ambitious, and they are fundamentally dissatisfied with the, the status quo. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I was I was in Medellin about 10 days ago for one of these refi retreats. And what struck me was the breadth of the people that were there, the diversity, the true cross-generationalism of them. You know, yeah, everything from 20-year-olds to 60-year-olds in here. And then the other thing is a bunch of people were going straight from that retreat to another retreat and another group of 50 people working on the refi problem. It was pretty amazing, the richness of the community. Um, where can people go if they want to find you? Where should they hunt you both down? I'm on Twitter, hidden in plain sight, at ETH Daily, E-T-H-D-A-L-Y. My handle across the internet is Sokosloth, and then I'm Emma at Shine.bc, and, and Ethan is Ethan at Shine.bc. Cool. Thank you guys both so much, and, and Ethan, safe travels down to Bogota. Thank you much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.